Uh, evening all. Uh, my name is Sam. Um, I'm part of the church family here and I'm going to lead us through the reading this evening. Um, follow along with me. It's in the book of Romans on page 1135. I'll give you a second to quickly find that. It's chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. Okay, Romans eight thirty one to 39. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you were here with us this morning, uh, it was an all-age service as we thought about harvest, um, and um, having something different in the morning gives us a chance in the evening to do something as a little bit of a one-off. And so this evening, we're getting a kind of deep dive into Romans chapter 8. Um, so do keep that open as we work our way through it and think about what that means for us today. Uh, why don't I pray for us as we begin? Father God, thank you for the wonderful truths that are spoken by Paul throughout Romans chapter 8. And so be with us as we come to this last section of this chapter, as we read Paul's summing up of this chapter and read about the wonderful assurances for the Christian believer. Father, help us to concentrate, help us to um, enjoy that assurance that you provide. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. A few years back, a, um, a bank or building society used this slogan to help advertise their product. They said, in a world of chaos, you need an anchor. In a world of chaos, you need an anchor. I'm not sure if that anchor is a bank or building society in a world of chaos, but there you go. But as the years have gone on since that advertising campaign, it seems to become more and more true, doesn't it? As we look around the world, as we look closer to home at our country, maybe as you look in the mirror and you reflect on your own life, you can see the chaos that's going on and so need an anchor in order to rely on. And where can you look? Paul says that in this chapter there is an anchor in which you can totally rely on. 
the big theme, as Zoe mentioned at the start of the service, the big thing that runs through Romans chapter 8 is one of assurance, which is pretty good news in a pretty unstable world that we live in. And not just for the world that we live in, but it's pretty good news for each one of us. There may be times in your life, there may be times right now, when you feel like your faith is pretty weak. When you can find yourselves asking questions of yourself or God. When you can find yourself doubting. Am I good enough for God? When he looks at me, does he, does he ever think, oh, is he or she worth it? What if I find things just too hard? Will I be able to keep on going? And so these verses are wonderfully written for those who doubt. These verses are wonderfully encouraging assurances for the Christian believer. So where do we find ourselves? We see, as um, Sam read out, maybe you notice the number of questions that Paul asks within these verses. He starts it off by saying, what then shall we say in response to this? Almost in response to everything that he's mentioned, the wonderful truths and realities that run through Romans chapter 8, that kind of reach a crescendo in verses 29 and 30, and and an almost wonderful chain reaction that goes on in verse 30. The truths and realities for the Christian believer. And so sums up and says, well, what can we say in response to this? It's almost as if Paul, as he's writing this, can imagine that the Christian believers in Rome, when they read this for the first time, and, and taking a step back and going, I want to ask a number of rhetorical questions to make sure they really get this, to make sure they've really got the realities and the truths that I've just spoken on. And so, verse 30, 31, what, shall, what then shall we say in response And he gives two massive assurances for the Christian and rounds it off with a reason. Here's the first wonderful assurance. Nothing can accuse you. Nothing can accuse you. Verse 33 to 34. If you ever have the questions, am I good enough for God? If you ever have the the thoughts coming back of the things you've done and the ways that you've messed up, Paul turns around and goes, no, nothing can accuse you. Have a look down at verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Paul is, is, if you like, taking us into the courtroom. It's a picture of the courtroom. And you're in the dock and the charges are being read out against you. Maybe you feel it in your life. You can think of the voices of friends or others around you just bringing up the ways that you've messed up. Maybe it's your own conscience, things that make you wake up in the night and go, I cannot believe that I've done that. How would God respond to me? How can he love me? And God's response? Well, there is no charge because I've chosen you. I've chosen you. There's no charge because I've justified you. End of verse 33. To justify, it's it's as the charges are read out, God is the judge and he declares you not guilty. 
It is just as if you have not sinned. Because as Jesus dies on the cross, he takes the punishment you deserve. And so it is just as if you have not sinned. But it is not just that. It's just as if you've always been perfect. Because not only does Jesus Christ take the sin that that you have committed and the punishment that you deserve, so you take his perfect record. And so God can declare as judge, not guilty. You are justified. God says, I look at you and I see Jesus. I look at you and I see purity. And as a result... Uh, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 1 is his kind of summary headline. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So to the second question, verse 34, who is he that condemns? Well, no one can condemn you. And do you see the, the breathtaking picture that Paul paints in verse 34? He says, Jesus Christ, the the man who went to the cross for you to take your punishment, the man who rose again, who defeated death, he is now sat at the Father's right hand and he is interceding for you. If you've ever gone for a job or something like that, you might be asked to provide a referee who can give a reference for you. Or maybe you provided a reference for someone else. You're asked by that person on their behalf Can you give a reference? Can you give almost a character reference of what they're like? Well, better than any job reference, you have the Son of God speaking on your behalf to the creator of the universe. And so, if ever someone says to God, really? You really want that person in your team? Jesus says, I died for that person. Whenever the devil says to God, do you not remember what he's done? Have you seen what she's got up to? Jesus turns to God and says, I died for that person. You can forget their sin. She's mine. I died for him. Check their record. It's totally clean. No one or nothing can accuse you. There is no condemnation. But what about the things that that can potentially get in the way of us following Jesus? What about the things that can trip us up? Well, secondly, Paul says, there is nothing that can separate you. There is nothing that can separate you. There can be so many distractions in life at the moment, whatever age you are. And so often those can be good things that God has given us, things like family and friends and relationships, things like jobs and career and work and college and school, good things that take our time and yet can become so much of a distraction that we wonder, can they become too big a thing? Uh, But not just good things, but, but hard things, tough things, sufferings, hardships, things that go wrong in life. What if they get in the way too much? What if they just become so much of an obstacle? What if things hurt so much that I just feel like I can't keep going? And Paul says there is nothing that can get in the way of God's love for you. Have a look down at verse 35. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all these things we are more love, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a pretty tough list of things in verse 35. And so we can go through sufferings and think it's just too much. Why are these happening? It shouldn't happen. And yet notice in the, in the quote from Psalm 44, notice that these sufferings that are quoted, they're not just general sufferings that can happen to any old person. These are sufferings that happen to Christian believers for following Jesus Christ. And so rather than thinking when sufferings happen, something must have gone wrong. Maybe it's taken God by surprise. Maybe he's out of control. Actually, Paul says, no, 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 no. that's no surprise to God. In fact, it's no surprise when you're following Jesus that you're going to go through sufferings. What can separate us? What a list that Paul gives us in verses 38 and 39. Paul says there is nothing in human experience. Not life with all its ups and downs and obstacles and challenges and distractions. Not even death itself. The greatest enemy to humanity the one thing we've not been able to be able to beat. There's nothing in the spiritual realm, neither angels or demons or any other supernatural power. There's nothing in time, anything that is happening now or anything that might happen in the future. There's nothing that opposes God, no power. There's nothing in space, no matter how high you go or how low you travel. Nothing in the whole of all of creation. How comprehensive is this from Paul? He wants you to know there is nothing that can separate you from God's love. Nothing that can separate us from God. Why? How is this even possible? And so finally, Paul says, it's because God is for you. It is because God is for you. It all depends on him. Many of you will know, um, Rosie and I, my wife and I, have got a uh, two-and-a-bit-year-old daughter. Uh, she's getting to the age where um, she kind of wants to try everything. So anything she sees me doing, she wants to do. But she's also getting to that age where she, she can detect a little bit of danger about it. Um, now, often these will be little things that we don't think twice about, but she's only two. Uh, so a couple of weeks ago, we, were, uh, we went for a walk in the woods, and I saw a tree trunk that had fallen over, so I jumped on it and walked across it. And as soon as she saw me, she's like, Lily, do it, Lily, do it. And so I help her up onto the tree trunk and step away. And suddenly, you can see her legs start to shake, and she has second thoughts about, maybe Lily doesn't want to do this. And so I step towards her, and I grab her hands, and I whisper into her ears, Lily, don't worry. Daddy's got you. Daddy's not going to let go of you. And so with the assurance in her ears, Lily's able to walk across the tree trunk. In relation to anything that we might face, 
in relation to any kind of opposition that we might face. God is for you. Have a look down. Verse 32, 31. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? The all-powerful creator of the whole universe, who holds everything in his hands and sustains everything that goes on, is for you. (laughs) So what opposition can count against that? He is for you, and he will bring you through. I wonder if you've seen any of the, um, well, read any of the Chronicle of Chronicles of Narnia books by C.S. Lewis. I love it when um, a series of books are made into films because it means I don't need to read the book. I can just watch the film. Um, I don't think they quite made it through all the books, but they made it through a few. Um, so I've read, well, I haven't read, I've seen <laughs> Prince Caspian. Um, there's a scene towards the end of Prince Caspian where uh, they're fighting the enemy and the enemy are retreating and they run back to the river. And they get to the bridge and they start to go along the bridge. And at the end of the bridge, they see little Lucy. And can't quite make it out there. There's little Lucy standing at the end of the bridge and she pulls out her tiny little dagger that can hardly do any damage. And the army stop and they look back at the the army coming to get them and they look forward to little Lucy at the end of the bridge and you can almost almost detect the, the kind of amusement in the leader's face, as he looks at this little girl and goes, really? You're going to stop us? And then at that moment, Aslan the lion comes and stands by Lucy's side. And it changes everything. Because when God is for you, who can be against you? How do we know if he'll pull through for us? Well, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Paul points to the cross as proof of God's commitment to you. If you're ever unsure of of whether God is committed to you, look back to the cross of Christ as the God of the universe gives up his one and only Son for you. God was willing to give up his most precious possession because he wants you. Why would he then hold back anything else, he says? These things at the end of verse 32, giving us all things, refers to the wonderful promises that Paul has talked about in this chapter. chapter culminating in the glorious inheritance that is there for every believer. And so Paul says, look back to the cross. See all that he has already given you? Why then doubt that he will continue to give you all that you need? If he was prepared to give up his son for you, there's no chance that he'll desert you now. Often we can fall into one of two camps when it comes to the Christian faith. There might be those here who, when they think about their faith, they look at themselves and go, I I just can't do it. I, I just won't be able to make it. 
And there's others who look at themselves and go, you know what? I'm all right. I'll be able to do this just fine. In fact, God's quite lucky to have me on his team. And to both of those people and anywhere in between, do you notice how much of all of this is totally down to God and not us? Have a glance down at the verses. Verse 31, God is for us. Verse 32, it's God who gave up his son and will give us all things. Verse 33, it is God who justifies. Verse 34, it's Christ who intercedes for us. And so, verse 39, there is nothing that can separate us from God's love that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, to those of us who look at ourselves and go, I just cannot do this. I've not got the strength. Good, because it's not down to you. It is God who is for you. And to those of us who think, I'm all right here. I've got this all under control in my own strength. Watch out, because it's not down to you. It is God who is for us. Why? Because of anything in us, because he looks at me and goes, God, would he? Yeah, I want him. Because of anything I've done, because of anything around me, No, no, no. Do you see how changeable the world is? Do you realize how much I change from day to day? If it was up to me, then God's love might change day by day. If it was up to anything around me, then God's love might change day by day. God loves me because he loves me. It is just who he is. God loves you because he loves you. Because he chooses you. I've been told, I've never experienced it myself, I just think I'm too scared, but I've been told that when you go rock climbing, if ever you need someone's help who's above you to hold on and pull you up, you're meant to use this kind of grip. People can tell me afterwards if um, I've got that wrong or I've been told wrong. But rather than hold hand to hand, you hold wrist to wrist. Because if then the person who's at the bottom holding up loses grip, the other person has got a secure grip on them holding onto their wrist rather than a flailing hand. It's a little bit of a picture of how God holds onto us. That rather than holding onto our hand, and, and when I'm feeling weak and just holding on by my fingertips, God's got me secure. God, has, God is holding onto you. He will never give you up. We see that throughout the Bible. Take the Apostle Peter the one that was chosen to lead the disciples during Jesus' life, the one that said he would never desert him. And yet, at Jesus' hour of greatest need, the one who denies Christ, denies ever knowing him three times. And yet, God didn't let him go. He, He brings him back, and if you were to read the book of Acts, you see how Peter is used for the establishing and growth in the life of the early church. I remember a few years ago when Rosie and I were struggling and going through a tough period. And this is what we held on to. At a time when we felt like we were holding on by our fingertips, it was the reassurance of knowing that God is for us. That it is not down to how strong I hold on to him. It is because he is holding on to us that we can keep going. And so we have the wonderful words of a song that is written, when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, 
he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Saviour loves me so. He will hold me fast. So are you afraid, verse 31, of who might be against you? Are you worried, verse 32, of the things that you need or haven't got? Are you feeling guilty, verse 33, of the charges that might come against you? How are we to respond? Don't look down at yourself, but look up to the glorious gospel of grace and look back to the cross where we see a wonderful example of how God is for you. An example of God's power, an example of God's love, an example of God's grace. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for the wonderful assurances we see in this part of Romans chapter 8. Thank you that there is no one or nothing that can condemn us and accuse us. Thank you that there is no one or nothing that can separate us from your love. And thank you that that is nothing to do with who we are or what we do, but all because of who you are and what you have done for us. That you love us because you love us. And that you've shown us that by sending Jesus Christ to die for us. Father, when we might have doubts or when we might be tempted to rely on ourselves, please help us to look up to you and look back to the cross and be reminded of those wonderful assurances that you will hold us fast. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Thank you so much to everyone who has uh, submitted their questions. Um, got some really, really important questions, and it's great to have a chance to grill Woody in a bit more detail um, about some of those things. So we're going to, I think, start by looking at um, questions that refer directly to the passage and then move on to a bit of kind of application from that. Um, so I think the question we'll start with is, um, what does verse 32 mean um, when it says, he will graciously give us all things? which I think you touched on a bit, but it would be helpful just to... Yeah, great. Good. I mean, good question. Let, let's go, what, what doesn't it mean, or what don't I think it means, and, and therefore what it does mean? I, I don't think it means a very literal, he will give us all things, or all things we want, or all things we desire, or all things uh, we might like in this life. I, I don't think there's anything in Scripture that would support that, to say, look, whatever you want, God will graciously give it to you. I think more it's important to see it in its context of, um, of what Paul has been saying throughout Romans chapter 8. And he's been talking about that those who trust in Jesus Christ um, and believe in him, here are the wonderful assurances and promises for the Christian believer. And so if you just cast your eye back over some of these, for example, um, just before this, in that chain reaction, I called it, of verse 30, here's the chain reaction reality for the Christian believer. Um, they're predestined, they're called, they're justified, and they are glorified. And so you've got that um, wonderful assurance of a future glory, uh, in glor- glorified inheritance, if you like, 
Um, interestingly, Paul writes it in the past tense, even though it's still to happen, because he's that certain that it's going to happen for the Christian believer. Um, so it's pointing back to those kind of assurances, along with um, verse 17, a wonderful um, adoption, verse 16, 17, a wonderful adoption and being an heir and co-heir of Christ, those, um, those wonderful promises that are to happen, those things. Great, thank you, Woody. Um, so another question sort of um, coming out of the passages. In, so someone says in verse 34, uh, a different version of the NIV says, who then is the one who condemns no one, Christ Jesus who died, which is different to the passage, this version of the NIV that we had read out. Um, and they've asked um, why, wh- why this difference in the text and um, does Christ condemn us? or not? Is, is that what the passage is saying, uh, that Christ is the one who condemns us? Um, no, it's not saying Christ is the one who condemns us. It's almost that rhetorical question of who can condemn us? Um, who is he that condemns? Um, and then this version has no one to say, look, look, because of what Christ has done on the cross for us, because of what God has done through Christ, there is no one who can condemn us. And referring back to the first verse of this chapter, chapter 8, verse 1, and saying, Christ Jesus, who died for us, who was raised for life for us, right now he is at the right hand of God interceding for us. He's on your side. He is vouching to God to say, look, she is mine. I died for him. So any accusation that comes your way, you can ignore it because his record or her record is clean. So it's not saying Christ condemns us. It's kind of a rhetorical question to say, there is no one who can condemn you because of what Christ has done and what Christ is doing for you on your behalf at the right hand of God. Thanks, that's amazing and a real (laughs) encouragement. Um, So someone asked quite um, a very important and quite difficult question. Um, How do we keep going with encouragement from these verses when our hurt and discouragement comes from Christ's people themselves, so comes from other Christians? Yeah, that's such a sadness and, and... and sorry if that's how you're feeling and, and that's been your experience of church and it shouldn't be that way. I, I think there is a kind of sad reality there of um, even though God's church is full of, hopefully, Christian believers trusting in Jesus, they're still affected by sin and still in that battle of sin and so are still fallen people who are being transformed and therefore Sadly, the reality is, and we see this at the moment in this in our country, that people are being hurt by individuals within God's church. Um, I think God wants us, again, to take our eyes off ourselves and look to him and go, look, here is a God who is perfect, who loves us, and who has shown his love for us in sending his son to die on the cross for us. And so even though there's hurt out there, and even though even more sad there's hurt in here, you can trust me. Look at my track record. I've sent my son to die for you. I'm for you. You can trust me. So there's a real sadness when hurt comes from within a church, and we want to address that, and we want to change that whilst living in the reality of a fallen world. And so look to a God who loves us and who has sent his son to die for us and promises to keep working in us. So I think a kind of look up and look to the wonderful God who loves you and has sent his son to die for you.
think we'll just squeeze in one more question, um, which kind of follows on from that theme of suffering. So someone says, uh, reflecting on suffering um, that can seem to separate us from experiencing God's blessings as Christians, how do we link the understanding of love, so kind of head knowledge of God's love, with lived experience um, in the midst of life's pain? Yeah, very quickly then, as we run out of time, a few things to say. I think um, a world of suffering around us is not the world that God wants it to be. He created a world that is good, and so it hurts him, it grieves him when he sees suffering. And and yet, in the midst of... And it therefore, it points us to a world where there will be no suffering. And so whilst we're stuck in that kind of in-between stage, in the midst of suffering, hold on to the truth and the love that you can see in the midst of it. Um, and I think a way, as the question says, how do we link that? I, I think a, a beautiful way we can link that is to look back at the cross. A, a, a moment of horrendous suffering, potentially the worst suffering imaginable known to a human being, and yet a moment of beautiful love as God chooses to send his, die, his son to die for you. And so in that one moment, we see suffering and love together. And so it feels like I've said it over and over, but to look back to the cross and see what God has done for you and to see the assurance, therefore, that even in the midst of suffering, he's got you and he loves you and he's for you. That's amazing. Thanks, Woody.